All right, we're running. Modern technology is really good. Um, so what we're going to do first is we're going to go over the build disciplines. If you can turn to the back side of your notebook, we're going to take a look at the build disciplines. This is something we do every time we meet together. And uh, we do this not because we don't remember, but we need to be reminded. It's good to hear these things every time we meet together. We're going to be talking about the disciplines that are in a man's life that keep him close to the Lord, that make him an effective servant in God's hands for the gospel. So the first thing we look at is we look at the heart. We examine our heart, then we examine our home, then we examine our ministry, and then we go from there into examining qualifications and hermeneutical things, and then we talk briefly about our church. So as it relates to the heart, we remember what uh, we've learned about the heart at the beginning of our build this year, and that the heart relates to um, the totality of who we are as men. It's the core of who we are. It's what we're all about. I'm going to read a couple of passages from Scripture for you, and I just want you to hear um, God's heart for us in our hearts. Listen to these statements from Scripture. Matthew 5.8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So it's the pure in heart that shall see God. In Hebrews chapter 10, the author says to his audience, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. So it's a sincere heart, a pure heart that we're talking about here that's good. 1 Timothy 1.5, at the beginning of the letter that, that we're going to be discussing today that deals with deacon qualifications, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. And again, the idea of a pure heart. So these are things that are in a man's heart that are good. These are things that are in a man's heart that are pure, that are sincere. But scripture also tells us something else. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verse 19 says, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, slanders, all kinds of things. So we see that what comes out of us, the evil that comes out of us, comes from our heart as well. This is really interesting because um, the motivation for what we think originates in our heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts. The motivation for what we do originates in our heart. Murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts, those are all things we do. And when we do those things, when a person does those things, um, the origin of those things is their heart and what's in their heart. Even how we use our tongue, the use of our tongue originates in our heart. False witnesses and slanders. Elsewhere in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew tells us that it's out of the overflow or the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. And so when we, we hear ourselves saying things, we, we know that what we're saying really reflects the true condition of our heart. And so clearly our heart needs to be fed with, with good things because on one hand we've got a sincere heart, we've got a pure heart, but on the other hand we've got out of our heart comes all of these evil things. So we need to feed our heart with the right things. The, uh, the theme verse for the women's ministry for Wellspring is Proverbs 4.23, and it says, Watch over your heart with all diligence. So our heart is something that needs to be watched over or guarded with diligence. And the way that we do that is we meet regularly with God through the reading of his word, the study of his word, and intimate time together spent with the Lord in prayer where we adore God, 
we confess our sin before God, we talk with God about our life, we give him great thanks for what he has done to save us. And we lay before him our requests, the things that we need, the things that are on our heart. He loves to hear us talking with him that way. And when a man does that, he is now shepherding his heart well and he's ready to step into his home and he's ready to be an effective leader in his home. And the home is the the first and the foremost place where we have to demonstrate the fruit of a well-shepherded heart. Um, A well-shepherded heart, one that's been fed with God's word, one that's been fed with good time conversing with God in prayer, that guy is now ready to be a servant leader to his wife if he's married. And he's able to demonstrate wise and gracious authority over his kids. He's going to be a man who listens really well. He's going to be a man who speaks after he listens and after he understands. He's going to be a man who asks good questions. The only man who's really capable of doing that is the man who's shepherded his heart well. If you're single and you live with other guys, the same principles apply to you. The time spent shepherding your heart towards holiness will and does equip you to be the most reliable, the most trustworthy, the most diligent, the most cooperative roommate you can possibly be. So it's so important that you shepherd your heart and you bring that into your home. And if you're single and you live alone, these same principles still apply to you as well. Whenever you interact with people in small group, whenever you interact with one another at church or in a setting just like we have today, you're bringing with you the fruit of your shepherding into one another's lives. And so a man who shepherds his heart with time in the Word, spends time interacting with God in prayer, confessing his sin, he's aware of his sin, he's aware of God's grace, he is the man who is best suited to to take what he has in his home and bring it into other people's lives. And we look at our third discipline. And our third discipline is all about the ministry that a man is involved in. And the man who has shepherded his heart and the man who is living out that heart shepherding in his home is now ready. He's well equipped to step into ministry at church. And what we talked about last time is still true this week, and that is that whenever you you step into ministry of whatever kind it is at this church, whether it's next generation ministries, or whether it's leading a small group, or whether it's working with the nursery or set up and tear down or anything else like that, you actually bring with you the fruit of your heart shepherding. People can see it and they can hear it in the way in which you speak with them. And so if you're a guy who's been shepherding your heart well, and you enter into ministry, people see you, and they see a man who is gracious, he's ready to use the gospel, he's ready to encourage, he's ready to bless other people. But if that's not you, and we mentioned this last time as well, and it's worth repeating again today, if you're a man who doesn't regularly shepherd your heart, when you step into the ministry that the Lord has given to you, you're stepping into a series of tasks. They're just things that need to be done in a sequential order for you to move through that task. Now, the gospel is not present. Encouragement is not present. Sensitivity to people's needs is not present. All of those things. So it is so important that we we discipline our heart, we live it out in our home, so that we can bring it into whatever ministry the Lord gives to us. Briefly, when we talk about the the qualifications, that's something we're going to spend most of our time today talking about. Um, It's mentioned for us in our passage today. That's 1 Timothy 3, verses... 8 through 13. The biggest mistake in all of this is that we think these deacon qualifications are something that you do. 
or something that a guy goes out and does. But it's not really what about what you do. What it is is about is what you are, what kind of man you are. You don't do dignity, and you don't do not being fond of sordid gain. Instead, those are things that, that are outward manifestations of what's already in your heart. If you focus on doing something, you'll miss the whole point of the heart from which the true nature of yourself is. So we're going to talk about that more today. The fifth discipline is about the hermeneutic. Again, we've talked about this before. Um, I like to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 22. This is where the Pharisees were testing Jesus, and they come up to Jesus and they say, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus told them three things. Do you remember what they were? He said, Love the Lord with all of your your heart. Love the Lord with all of your your soul and with all of your mind. Yeah. So when Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees, he was engaging with them and telling them, listen, you need to love the Lord your God with all of your mind. And we do that in, in three ways. We do that here in Build. We do it in H3 where we're going to dig a little deeper and establish a greater foundation for how one studies the word and how one prepares a message and how one delivers a message. We also have GBI for, for um, Grace Bible Institute for the people who have a specific ministry objective that is in line with the... Um, the vision and the purpose of our church. Um, but the truth here in the hermeneutic is that God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us in creation, but he also gave us his word. And the interesting thing about all of this is that God is going to give us an eternal experience with him in heaven where he is going to continually astound us with the size of his wisdom, with the extent of his power and his justice and his love and his mercy and all of those things. And it is our task to be as well acquainted with that God as we can be while we're here on this earth so that we will be ready to experience him both now and in the future. And lastly, we have the vision, the purpose of our church. The vision of Grace Bible Church is that we prize three things. We prize the glory of God, and that's most clearly demonstrated at the cross of Jesus Christ as he died in our place. And we prize transformation of our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And those are the things that are important to us at this church. And our purpose in doing this is so that we can draw in people, so that they can hear the gospel, they can be transformed by the gospel. And then we build these people up so that they can be sent out into their neighborhood, possibly even being sent out into their own family, and out into their workplace. So those are the disciplines. Those are things we want to keep in front of us all the time. It is incumbent on us to do that. Those are the things that make us effective and useful instruments in God's hands. So keep that in mind as we we go through our week, that it's always a good thing to be keeping in mind our heart and our home and our ministry, our qualification as men who are pursuing or involved currently in deacon leadership, And we want to be men who pursue God with all of our minds. We want to understand the purpose of our church and the vision of our church that God has put us in here. So let's do that. Okay, Um, we have um, an opportunity to visit and share together and build up one another here and build. What we're going to do is we're going to take, let's see, it's 7.15. We're going to take uh, 40 minutes. Let's try and get back here by 5 till 8. And let's do this. Let's spend time together and let's talk about the core questions. 
If you guys are in a small group that discusses the core questions, you're familiar with this. If you're not, I've got them written up on the board here. That is, we talk about four things so we can um, use these to assess how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. And these things are things that are not an interview. They're not a, a means of grilling one another on how they're doing. This is a means for caring with one another, caring for one another. We talk about God's Word, how we're reading God's Word, and how it's influencing our life, what we're reading. So talk freely and openly in your groups about what your intake of God's Word looks like in your life. We also talk about our prayer life. What does your prayer life look like? How often are you meeting with God in prayer? What are you praying about? What are you confessing? What are you thanking God for? How is God answering prayer in your life? There's a lot of encouragement here that you can share as you see the Lord answering prayer, as you see the Lord growing you in your love for him. The third one of these is the gospel. It's about the gospel. How is God using the gospel in your life to bring the gospel into other people's lives? Whether it's people in your home or people outside of your home, people in your family, people at work. Talk about how God is using you in his purpose and his gospel mission. And fourthly, we want to talk about this, the area of sin. The idea here is not to expose our chest and just tell everybody everything that's, that's going on with us, but the idea here is to share with one another how God is growing us in our battle against sin, how we're using the gospel to wage war with sin, how we're encouraging one another as we see God grow us in our ability to think differently about our sin. And as you talk about sin, it's really good to keep Romans 6 in mind that you are now one who has a different relationship to sin than you had before God saved you, and that it's, it's no longer your master the way that it used to be. So let's spend some time together. Let's spend 40, 45 minutes together talking about these four things, and let's get back here just before 8 o'clock, and we'll try and get going at 8 o'clock. Okay, thanks. Okay. All right, last week we spoke about the deacon qualifications and deacon service. And the main thing we wanted to remember is that not the deacon service is all about the role. It's not all about performing a task. There's a much greater, a much larger scope and context in which we need to view deacon service, and that is towards advancing the gospel. So if you take your your handout out and follow along, make some notes, we're going to look at the first point is that... um, It's the greater context in which deacons sit is that um, the entire body of Christ is advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. They're advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. The entire body. Um, Last week we looked at Acts chapter 6 as we looked at the formation of the original deacon service, prototype deacons. This week we're going to look primarily at 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13. But before we go there, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And it's tempting again to view deacon service as just serving in a role. I set up chairs before church. Or I'm in charge of facilities. Or I'm in charge of next generation ministries or something like that. But but the truth about deacon service is that it serves a much higher purpose. and, And that purpose is to advance the gospel mission of Jesus. So in Acts, or I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to take a look at what Paul says to the church in Philippi. And let me just read the first five verses. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the elders, the overseers, and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy 
in my every prayer for you all. In view of your participation in the gospel from the very first day until now. In verse 1, in the very first verse in this whole letter, Paul identifies three separate groups in the church. He identifies saints, and he identifies overseers, and he identifies deacons. And all three of those groups are actually functioning, and they're actively successfully functioning in the gospel purpose. We can see in verse 5, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So what we have is a church in Philippi. It's consisting of three groups of people. It's got the elders, it's got the deacons, and it's got the saints, which is the entire body as a whole. And they're all participating in the gospel ministry. Okay, so the disciples are committed to this, the elders are committed to this, and the deacons are committed to this. We think back to what we looked at last week in Acts chapter 6. We saw all three groups functioning in the church purpose there as well. We had the elders. They were leading the church, and they're teaching the word, and they're leading the church in prayer. We have deacons serving. Remember the situation in Acts chapter 6. Deacons were serving widows in the distribution of food. And we have the disciples. All of the saints were participating in the gospel mission as they were worshiping together and they were sharing all things together. And the result of that was the church was growing. The church was flourishing, was prospering. And a big part of that was because all three components of the church were functioning well in the gospel ministry. If any one of those three components is missing, the church's effectiveness is compromised. Think about what would happen if you you had a church where um, you had just two of those three groups. Let's say you had a church where you had elders and you had deacons, but you had no saints. You had no body. That church wouldn't function very well, would it? No. What if you had deacons and you had saints? You had a deacon board of people serving, and you had a large body of saints within the body of Christ, but you had no elders. Would that church function properly? No, you'd have no leadership, right? And likewise, if you had elders running the church and you had a church body of parishioners in the church, but you had no deacons, that wouldn't function well either, would it? Deacons are an essential role in advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. And so we need to keep that in mind as we consider our passage today, that deacons are an essential role in advancing the gospel. So let's turn to our passage today, First Corinthians, no, sorry, First Timothy chapter 3. Verses 8 through 13. First Timothy 3, 8 through 13. This is a passage that follows the elder qualifications. Paul begins to write to Timothy about deacon qualifications. We'll start by reading the passage. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Deacons likewise, in the same way as elders, deacons must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These these men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their household. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing 
and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The second thing we want to talk about today is the importance of the deacon role. Deacons must be men who are tested and approved in character. You see we've got some blanks there. Deacons, it's the importance of a tested and approved character in this passage. Notice that this description of the deacon qualifications is much longer than the description of the deacon qualifications when the original prototype deacons were being assigned in the church in Jerusalem. Let me just read the description of the qualifications in, in Acts chapter three, Acts chapter 6, verse 3. This is a much shorter description. It says, this is what the apostles are saying to the church in Jerusalem. They say, therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. And this task, again, in that context, was the distribution of food to both the Greek widows and the Jewish widows. But the qualifications is very short. Seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. That's it. Here we've got a much longer thing. It's several verses from verse 8 all the way through verse 13. It's a much longer description of the qualifications for deacons. So a question we want to ask ourselves is, is Paul setting aside the qualifications that were established by the apostles for the early church in Jerusalem? And is he establishing a different set of requirements and qualifications for the church that Timothy is pastoring in Ephesus? So are these completely different, or is he doing something that's consistent and the same? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Let's look at the way in which it is the same. Turn with me in your Bibles back to Acts chapter 6, verse 3, and we'll take a look at what those, those qualifications are. They're men of good reputation, men full of the Spirit and of wisdom. Those are the qualifications, right? Okay, you see those? Good reputation, full of the Spirit, and of wisdom. Now keep your finger there and turn back to our passage in Timothy, that Paul is writing to Timothy. The same kind of man that's being described in Acts chapter 6 is the kind of man that's being described by Paul in his letter to Timothy. The man who is of good reputation, he's full of the Spirit and he's full of wisdom, is the same kind of man who is dignified, who is not fond of sordid gain, who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. The way in which these two requirements and qualification lists are the same is that they're talking about the same kind of man. It's just a much shorter, much more abbreviated description in Acts chapter 6, where in 1 Timothy 3 it's a longer description, but it's the same kind of man. But it's different in one way as well. It's different in the way in which the description is given. The description in Acts chapter 6 is much shorter. But we see in the, in the passage that we have in front of us in 1 Timothy 3 that the church has much more refined view of the description of a deacon. 
And it's refined in two specific ways. One is the character of the man is more clear and more extensive. And the second relates to the way in which the deacon himself is evaluated. So again, it's going to be a more clear, more extensive description of his spiritual character. And it's going to address the way in which he's evaluated, neither of which was was given in much detail back in Acts. Let's look down at the middle of our of our description here in these qualifications at verse 10. We're going to get back to the beginning and we're going to walk through each one of the qualifications, but I want to start in verse 10. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. What we have here is the the tested and approved character sandwich. At the beginning, at the end of the of the verse, what we have here are qualifications for the man. At the beginning of this of the verse, we have the men must be tested, and at the end of the verse, we have they must be beyond reproach. So, kind of like the bread in a sandwich, you have tested and beyond reproach, and in the middle, they're able to serve. They're able to serve as deacons if they're tested, and they're beyond reproach. The Greek word tested is a really interesting word. It was a word that was used to evaluate a coin to determine whether the coin was a true coin or whether it was counterfeit. And they used two particular tests to establish whether the coin was true or not. The first was a test of temperature. The coin had to withstand a certain temperature. And the second test was a duration of time. The coin had to withstand that that temperature for a duration of time. And if it didn't make either one of those qualifications, it wasn't a legitimate coin. It was known to be a counterfeit coin. The same thing is true. That idea is being applied to the, the deacons here. They need to be tested both with a role, both with a task that extends over a period of time. So there's an observation relationship that's in place between those that are prospective deacons in the church in Ephesus and those that are currently elders at the church in Ephesus. And what this testing period allows the the elders to do, it allows them to observe for a particular time and experience that the um, the men have been revealed to be above reproach in their serve. Yeah. Right. The way that works is ministry opportunities for the deacon before he's in the official deacon role. The elders are just observing the man. The elders get together and they say, I think we see a lot of deacon-like qualities in this man. Let's give him an opportunity to to demonstrate himself. He's not in an official deacon role yet, but let's just give him opportunities. And he's being watched, he's being observed. The elders are talking to people in the body about their interaction with this man. How is his care? Does does he appear to be a man who shepherds his heart well? Does he appear to be a man who cares for others well? That's before the the deacon role starts. So they're just observing him as he's in roles. He could be on setup and teardown. He could be teaching in Next Generation Ministries. He could be doing any other things. And, And the elders are just watching. They're talking to him. They're talking to his wife if he's married. They're asking questions about his life. It's important to see what this is not. 
Um, this is not guys who are becoming deacon qualified as they're on the job as a deacon. This is not something you learn on the job with. This is something that you demonstrate prior to being appointed as a deacon. These are men who have approved themselves. They've proven themselves before their appointment to the deacon ministry. Okay? So that's the idea of being tested. The elders are trying to do that here at Grace. And what we're trying to do here is, is provide ministry opportunities for men where the elders are close enough to them to observe and recognize where effective leadership and shepherding is taking place. And like I said, we do that in Next Generation Ministries. We do that in Build. We do that in small groups, small group leadership, other places like that. Okay. So the top half of the sandwich is tested, and the bottom half of the sandwich is beyond reproach. And this is one of those umbrella qualifications. It's the same umbrella qualification that's given to the elders in the beginning of this same chapter as Paul is writing to Timothy. And what it relates to is that there is no mar, there is no stain, there is no taint or blemish on your character, on your overall character. It means that there's no discredit or disgrace that can be attached to the man because of his personal character and his lifestyle. It also means that charges that are brought against a man don't stick because of his character. Okay. Now, everybody in the body should aspire. They should pursue to be above reproach. Every man, every woman, every child in the church should aspire to this. But a deacon is one who is to be a leader among the body in this, in this qualification. The people in the body can look at him and they can say, that man is above reproach. He's growing in his ability to be above reproach, but he certainly is today, and he's leading others. Others want to emulate him, and they want to be like him. Okay? John? Can you say above, above reproach? Yeah. That means that no charge can be brought against you that can be attached to you, that can be confirmed. That relates to your character. This man is characterized by some negative aspect of behavior. There just is none of those things. I'm sorry? It means that overall there's no mark on his character. As you step back and you look at him, you don't see these big, large character flaws in the man. Every person is going to have blame because we all have sin, right? But the man, is, as you look at him, there's no outstanding character that you see that just is a mar on his character and the reputation of the gospel. Okay. As we look back at the, the list of qualifications for the elders, you'll notice that the first thing that is, is given to an elder in, in the elder qualifications at the beginning of this chapter is that they're above reproach. So in the elder qualification list, above reproach is put first. But you notice here that, that the qualification that they're beyond reproach for the deacons is not at the beginning. It's not the first qualification listed. It's, it's buried in the middle of the whole list of things. There's all these verses. There's six verses, and right in the middle of it is given the requirement that a deacon is beyond reproach. And so we ask ourselves, why is it that it was put in the beginning of the list for elders, but it's buried in the middle of the list for deacons? And I, I think the reason is is that um, we want to make it more dip- difficult to separate the testing and the above reproach aspect 
for the deacon from all the other specific character qualifications. It ties it to all the other ones as they can see that he's a man of dignity and he's, he's a man who's not fond of sordid gain. You can see the relationship between being above reproach and all of those other things and it keeps them closely coupled together. And that's something that we need to keep in mind as well. So a well-qualified deacon is one who's demonstrated in himself over a period of testing and he possesses an above reproach character. Okay, So that's the first thing we want to look at is that he's going to be tested and he's approved. So there are seven character qualifications that we see here in this passage. And we're going to go through each one of them. And then we're going to spend some time talking about women because we notice that women are addressed in the middle of our passage. So what we're going to do is walk through each of the seven qualifications. We're going to talk about what they mean, um, what is being meant by those qualifications, and then we'll address the subject of women. Okay. The first one in, in chapter 3, verse 8 is, is that a deacon must be a man who has dignity. He must be a man of dignity, and this means that he has a serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. Serious bearing because of a serious mind and character. The misperception is to think of a man who is dignified as one who dresses well, and he speaks with big words, and he makes a lot of money, and he's really stuffy, and he's really different from everybody else. But that's not what it's about. It's not about that at all. What we want to do again is just keep in front of us the idea that we're talking about what kind of man a deacon is. It's all about what kind of man he is. It's not about things that are only external. This is a, a man who has a serious manner about himself because he has a serious mind and he has a serious character. And the interesting thing about this is that this is a very observable Qualification. You can see it in a person when you look at him. You can hear it when you talk to them. He's a very serious man, but at the same time, this is a man who's winsome, and he's appealing to talk to. He's, he's pleasant to be around. And he produces a respect among the, the, those that he's around. This person is not a drag. He's not boring to be around. He's not dull. He's a joy to be around. He's a blessing. He's not cold. He's not overbearing. He's not haughty. He's not joyless. He's not silly or flippant. And he's not one who is always making light of the situation. He's a man who has a, a serious bearing because he has a serious mind and he takes his character seriously. So some questions we can ask ourselves as we begin to evaluate ourselves with the task of being a man who's dignity, a man who's dignified. One of the first questions is, when I'm talking to people in conversation with them, what is my tone in my conversation with them? What is it generally characterized by? Is it a serious tone? Can people tell that I take my conversations seriously? Another question is, can people tell that I think seriously about the situations and the circumstances the Lord has me in? Can people tell by the way I talk about the situations the Lord has me in that I am taking them seriously? Another question is, when I'm in conversation with someone else and I'm engaging in conversation with somebody else, do I ask questions of the other person that get to the heart of the matter? Those are some questions we can ask ourselves to assess whether or not we are men of dignity. The man who is a man of dignity is well on his way to being qualified 
for deacon service. Next in our list, we have double-tongued. A man who is qualified as a deacon is not double-tongued. Someone who is not double-tongued is, a, is one who has no apparent discrepancies in his words. There's no discrepancies in his words. And the Greek word for double-tongued means literally two words, dialogos. It's a man with two messages, and he most likely gives those two messages to two separate audiences. So a man who is not double-tongued is a man who has no discrepancies in what he says, regardless of who he's talking to. Everybody gets the same message, regardless of the audience or the subject or any other influence that's in place. And here's why this is really, really important. A lot of times when a deacon is serving in a role, he has a much greater degree of contact with the body of Christ than the elders do. That's especially true in a role like benevolence, where you are working hand in hand with someone who's in a time of need. And so you're going to be working very, very closely with these people. What would you have if you had a deacon who spoke with one message to those in the body that he's ministering to? And then when he talks to the elder board, he has another message, a very different message. What you'd have is a very poorly informed elder board on what the true nature of the situation is. And when you have a poorly informed elder board, what you get is poor decisions. You get poor shepherding care. You get a poorly functioning church. And all of that contributes to a poor gospel ministry, a poor attempt at advancing the gospel. So the deacons actually have a very significant role in advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ when they speak with the same message to all people in the church. Very, very important. The deacon who is one who is a man who is not double-tongued, his speech is characterized by integrity and consistency and honesty. And because of all those things, this is really important. He's trustworthy. The elders can trust him. And that's the kind of deacon that you want, is one who's trustworthy. So some questions we can ask ourselves as we look at the character of someone who is not double-tongued is, does my account of an event change as my audience changes? When I'm talking about something and I'm describing an event to one group of people, do I describe it the same way as I describe that event to another group of people within my church? When I'm talking about something, do I have a different standard of accuracy? Do I use a different standard of accuracy when I talk with my wife or my friends than I talk with somebody else? I think one of the most important questions to ask this in this area is, am I remembering who my primary audience is in any conversation? Your primary audience is the God that created you. And we need to remember that it's just as if we're standing in the throne room of heaven every time we say anything. He's right in front of us. He's listening to everything. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is open and laid bare before him. He sees everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. It's very important that we function with God as our primary audience in all conversations. And when we do that, we guard ourselves against being a man who is double-tongued. So the man who is not double-tongued is well on his way to qualification in deacon service. The fourth qualification is one who is not addicted to much wine. (coughs) 
someone who is not addicted to much wine is um, someone who is well qualified to be a deacon. But someone who is addicted to much wine is characterized by a repeated, habitual turning of thought to the use of alcohol. A repeated, habitual turning of thought to the use of alcohol. And there's two words that need to be looked at in this passage. And the first is addicted, and the second is wine. Addicted is given in the present tense, which means it's a habitual action. It's something that's ongoing. And what's in focus here is the man's thought process. A man whose thought and judgment is continually influenced by the effect and the prospect of alcohol. He's always thinking. His judgment is always influenced by the thought of consuming or obtaining alcohol. He's always occupied with the thought of how to bring alcohol into his life. And doing so influences his judgment, his words, everything about the man. So that's what it means to be addicted. It means to have your thought process under influence so that your judgments are swayed. The second part of this qualification we want to look at has to do with the word wine. And in one sense, you can substitute anything for the substance wine. You could substitute prescription drugs or illegal drugs or caffeine or sugar or chocolate or anything else. Nothing should be used as a vice in our life to influence us in our decisions. But in another sense, there's a, there's a very substantial difference between being addicted or being given to something that has a significant influence on the function of your brain, like alcohol or a prescription drug or an illegal drug, and something that really doesn't have nearly the same influence on your mental capacity, like chocolate or sugar or caffeine. So we need to hold those things together. Those things need to bear equal weight. You need to consider a man who is not addicted to anything, but at the same time avoids all things that affect his judgment. Okay. Some questions we can ask ourselves is, when was the last time I evaluated my use of alcohol? Have I actually sat down and said to myself, okay, here is how I'm going to use alcohol. Here's the ways in which I will use alcohol. I will use alcohol under these conditions because I know that these conditions are a safe and reasonable way to use alcohol. Another question is, do my thoughts regularly gravitate towards the purchase and the use of alcohol? Do I find myself thinking about when I'm going to buy alcohol? How am I going to buy it? Where am I going to get it? Do I need to keep this a secret? Another question you can ask yourself is, do I know how to use alcohol in a God-honoring way? Do I actually know how to use it in a way that, that brings glory and brings honor to God? When you read the New Testament, you will see that the use of alcohol is actually is an area of freedom in the New Testament. It's an area of freedom. If you come from a background where the use of alcohol is not viewed as a view of, as an area of freedom, the elders would love to talk to you. You can sit down and talk with any one of us, and we can share with you about what the New Testament says about the use of alcohol in a God-honoring way. And on the elder board, we have nine men who all have different practices with the use of alcohol, but we all have a common conviction about the use of alcohol. And that is that there is a way 
to honor the Lord in your use of it. A way that is thankful, a way that is self-controlled, a way that is respectful of others, a way that does not harm the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. So if you have thoughts about that, questions about that, any one of the elders would love to talk to you about that. The next qualification is that the man who is qualified as a deacon is a man who is not fond of sordid gain. This is loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. Loving the gain of wealth so that my character is questioned. It's a man who has fond thoughts of monetary gain with a questionable motive. His motives are questionable. Even if this gain is dishonest, the fact that his dishonest gain doesn't even bother him. It doesn't faze him. He's not worried about that. This is a warning against using the deacon role for the sake of financial gain. A lot of times in deacon situations, you're going to be faced with using resources, using funds, using things. There's going to be expenditures. There's going to be reimbursements for things. A man who serves as a deacon needs to be a man who is not fond of of gaining from ministry purpose. Think about the situation in Acts chapter 6. You have the, the overlooking of the Greek women and the serving of food. And so they put in charge a group of men to take care of this problem. You already have a racially charged situation where you've got the Greek widows being overlooked and the Jewish widows having the food not being overlooked. Imagine adding on top of that the one who was assigned to work the problem is a man who's misusing the resources and the funds that are intended to solve the problem. Think about the harm that that's going to bring to the body. And think about also the damage to the gospel witness that occurs as those outside of the church watch this taking place inside the church. It's very important this time to remember that the deacons again are ones who have an aim to serve and advance the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ. So they need to be men who are not fond of sordid gain. Some questions you can ask yourself in this area are, does my wife trust me with my use of money? Does my wife know what I'm doing with our money? Do I talk to her about it? Do I let her know? If she's the one who pays the bills, are we communicating well back and forth about this? Or are these gray areas over here that she doesn't know anything about? She's not sure what I spend. Just evaluate yourself in that area. Another question you can ask yourself is, how much attention am I giving to myself in the little things? How much attention am I giving to my spending, my spending habits in the little areas? The idea there is, if you're faithful in the little things, things which have a small scope, then you can be trusted to use things in a larger scope. The next qualification that we see in verse 9 is that a deacon is one who holds to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. This is a man who has an ever-present grasp on what is believed, and it causes the conscience to affirm, not condemn, the man or his ministry. An ever-present grasp on what is believed. Yeah. Speak up. Sorry about that. Thank you. Let me do that. Is this better? Okay. All right. So 
He has a grasp on what he believes. And this causes his conscience to affirm, not condemn, his ministry or himself. Let's just take a look at what some of the words mean here, and I think it'll help us have a better idea of the ministry. The first thing is that he's holding to. This is a present tense verb, which again means that it's something that he does persistently, he does consistently. He never loses sight of what he's holding on to. And what he's holding on to is the mystery. And the mystery here is something, it's not something that cannot be comprehended, but it is a truth that was unknown, but has now been revealed. And what has been revealed is the faith, and that is the gospel, the content of the gospel, the content of what's believed. And when it talks about a clear conscience, it talks about a gift that God gives that affirms or condemns our thoughts and our words and our actions. It describes the one who has a biblical conviction that he lives by, that gives his conscience no opportunity to accuse him. So what we have here is one who is living by a conviction. And the way that he lives under that conviction gives his own conscience no opportunity to accuse him. That is what we want to strive for. So feed your conscience well, guys. Acquaint yourself more and more deeply with the content of the gospel. Understand the gospel and then live by it. And in doing so, your conscience will have no opportunity to accuse you. Your conscience will only affirm both who you are as a man and your ministry as a deacon. So some questions we can ask ourselves in this area are, can I articulate the gospel clearly and concisely? If I'm a man who has an ever-present grasp on the gospel, I need to be a man who can explain and articulate the gospel clearly. Another question we can ask ourselves is, does my conscience condemn me when I approach God's word and the way in which I approach God's word? Am I on a path of understanding the gospel and knowing God more and more deeply? So what we're going to do now is we're going to jump down to verse 12. We're going to skip over the the verse that addresses wives, and we're going to look at verse 12. A deacon is a man who is a husband of one wife. A man who is a husband of one wife is a one-woman man. This man is a one-woman man. What this is not saying is that to be a deacon, a man has to be married. What this is not saying is that he has to be married to be a deacon. It also is not saying that in order to be a deacon, a man needs only to be married. All I got to do to be a deacon is to get married. It's not saying that. And thirdly, this is not saying that if I want to be a deacon, all I've got to be is sexually pure only indeed. That's what it's not saying. What this is saying is what kind of man you are. You're a one-woman man, and that is that all of your affections... All of your thoughts, all of your desires are only for your own wife. This is the same qualification that applies to elders. But this qualification also applies to single men. You would think by looking at this that, oh, this is a qualification for a man who has a wife. But this also relates to single men. And that is that a single man is one who curbs his own thoughts He curbs his own desires for the woman that the Lord may bring to him in the future. He's careful with his eyes. He's careful with his thoughts. He's careful with his body. 
He's reserving, preserving, maintaining himself for the woman that the Lord may have for him in the future. So some questions. If you're married, what is my first thought if or when I entertain an affectionate thought for someone other than my wife? What is the first thing I do when I have an affectionate thought for somebody other than my wife? Do I preach the gospel to myself? Do I remember first and foremost that I have a new relationship to sin now where sin is no longer my master? Do I thank God for my wife, that he gave me a wife I don't deserve? Do I praise God for his design in marriage that is truly a fulfilling and satisfying experience? Another question you can ask yourself is, Do I understand God's design for intimacy? Do I really have a clear picture of God's design for intimacy? And that is a married man and woman bringing joy and pleasure into their exclusive relationship with one another. Have I thought on that? Have I contemplated that? Have I studied that? Do I have a right understanding of God's design for intimacy? And then lastly, we're going to look at a a qualification that One who is a deacon is a good manager of his children and his own household, in verse 12. This is a man who provides direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. Direct and ongoing oversight of children and household affairs. The word manage in Greek means to have charge over. It means to stand before or to rule or to manage. But you're not doing this from a distance. You're not separated from, you're not distant from the ones you're ruling over. You're close enough to have intimate familiarity with all that's taking place in your household, with your wife and with your kids and everything in your home. This is another present tense verb, which implies an ongoing action that's true today and it's true into the future. Deacons are men who are engaged with their children. They're engaged with their home. They understand what is taking place presently. They understand what the risks are. They understand what's going well and what's not going well. And for the things that are going well, they praise their children. For the things that are not going well, they're actively involved in restoring good character, restoring good function. And this is really important because Only the man who is faithful in a smaller scope of his family can be trusted in a larger scope, the family of God. It's really important to consider that. And you might ask yourself, well, what happens if you're a deacon and you're married and you have no children? And then your wife gets pregnant or you adopt a child and now you have a child. You guys know when you bring a child into your life, when you bring a child into your home, your, your, your situation in life, your season in life changes drastically. So what happens is the man doesn't become immediately disqualified, but the elders are watching and they're observing that man to see how he does with these new elements in his life. And if he proves himself to be the kind of man who is still a good manager of his home, even though his situation in his home has changed, he remains qualified. But if he remains and he demonstrates himself to be a man who who no longer is a good manager of his home because he has not been prayerful and he's not been thoughtful about how to continue being a good manager now that he has a child in his home, the man is no longer qualified to serve as a deacon in the church. So some questions you can ask yourself is, as you evaluate this, 
am I a man who's intimately involved in the guidance of my kids? Do I understand what my kids are working with? Do I understand what is hard for them, what is going well and what is not going well? You can also ask yourself, am I a man who's acquainted with what's going on in my house, in the affairs of my house? Do I manage things well? Do I manage money well? Do I manage repairs and maintenance well? Or do I just shift all of that to my wife and just let her take care of that because I'm going to work? A man who is well qualified for deacon service is a man who is intimately involved in those things. And there's freedom about how you implement that, but he's a man who is in touch with those things. He's a man who is able to recognize when a situation is out of step and he's able to restore that. So that's one who is a good manager of his home. Now we're going to jump back to verse 11 and we're going to address the issues of deacons' wives. Let's read verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified and not malicious gossips, faithful and temperate in all things. We need to examine the word women. There's two ways to interpret this, usually. There's two camps of looking at the word women. In one hand, you have a group of people who treat this to say deacons' wives. Deacons' wives must be dignified not malicious gossips, temperate and faithful in all things. And on the other hand, you you have people who say, no, this represents a new role. This is actually a third role. You've got elders, and you've got deacons, and you've got women deacons. So there's a group of people who view this as women deacons. And at our church, we, we believe that what this is referring to is women who are the wives of men who are serving as deacons. And there are six reasons why we give for those. And um, we're going to give those. I'm going to list one of those. I'm going to list the first one. And we can provide the rest for you um, later because it's not in my sheet. I lost a page in my notes. I went from page 10 to page 13. So 11 and 12 are missing somewhere. But the first one of these six reasons is that the the word generically woman is used here. Um, Paul does not use a specific title when he's referring to these women. He doesn't call them deaconesses, or he doesn't call them women deacons. He doesn't provide a term that describes women who are serving in a deacon role. He just says women. Another reason that you might be concluding to see, you might see that this is talking about women who are the wives of men who serve as deacons, is that nowhere else in scripture does this passage talk, does scripture talk about women serving in a deacon role. Nowhere else in scripture do you see this. In fact, earlier in the same letter, in chapter 2, verse 12, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I don't allow for a woman to exercise authority over men. So Paul, if he was describing a, a role here that's provided for women, would um, women deacons would be in direct conflict to what he said earlier in the letter. Can you imagine yourself writing a letter to somebody, a letter of substance or a letter of significance, and in that letter... You contradicted yourself in a significant area to your friend. It would be very difficult to do that. Um, We'll provide the the remainder of those. Let's go back and let's look at actually what the qualifications are for the women who are wives of men who serve as deacons. 
Let's look at those. In verse 11, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Dignified is the same thing. It's the same quality that the deacon men must have in verse 8. So we won't go back into that. Not malicious gossips means that women don't throw slanderous accusations in their speech. There is no slanderous accusations that are being given in what they say. This is a qualification that is specific to women in the same way that the qualification is being a man who is the husband of only one wife is given to men. And the reason for that is because there are character weaknesses, specific gender-related character weaknesses for women and specific gender-related character weaknesses for men. And one of those that's more common in women is the use of their tongue and the way in which they use their tongue and they use their words. So they must not be malicious gossips. The women must also be temperate in all things. These women must be temperate in all things, which means that, that they have clear teaching. There is nothing in their thinking, there is nothing in their experience that clouds their thinking, clouds their thinking or their judgment. And the last thing is that they're faithful in all things. This is a woman who is faithful in all things. And I don't have my notes here, but this is a substantial task. Being the wife of a man who is a deacon is a substantial, noble difficult task and so this woman must be faithful she is going to have a lot of exposure to the body she is going to be in conversation with her husband and her husband will talk to her from time to time about his experiences serving in the body and she needs to be faithful with that information that he shares with her she must be careful and thoughtful about what she uses for for her conversations with other people so she must be faithful in all things Okay, the last thing that we have here is the blessing or the benefit or the result of faithful deacon leadership. Down in verse 13, we say, Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Two things here. These men obtain a high standing and they have a great confidence in the faith. The high standing, the word there refers to a platform or a base. And it's a sense of regard and respect that the rest of the body has for the man. That what this is saying is that when the rest of the body looks at this man, what they see is a man who can stand before God with integrity. There is nothing in his character or in himself as the body looks at him that would cause him to be unable to stand before God with integrity. And the man who is a deacon and who has served well also has a great confidence in the faith that is in Jesus. And what this means is the man has not only a confidence in himself, his own work in the gospel, but he has a confidence to continue to function in greater and greater ways in his deacon service. And we can think of two men who did that really well in the Acts chapter 6 account. The first one was Stephen and the second one was Philip. When Stephen was faithful in his service, it emboldened him to continue in his service. It emboldened him to stand firm and stand faithful against the Pharisees, and he eventually gave his life for it. So that's the example of Stephen. Because he was faithful in his role, he was emboldened to go on and be more faithful and end up giving his life. And then we have Philip. 
Philip is faithful in the serving of food to the widows, both the Greek and the Jew. And that emboldened him, that prepared him, that led him to take the gospel into very difficult and very challenging situations. We remember in Acts chapter 8 that Philip took the gospel to to the Ethiopian eunuch. That was definitely a cross-cultural experience. It was not a simple experience. But the body of his ministry was in Samaria. And the Samaritans were people who were repulsed by the Jews. The Jews just could not tolerate the Samaritans because they were not pure like they were. And Philip had no problem because of his early faithfulness in his deacon service to take the gospel into Samaria and be effective with the gospel. Philip the evangelist was was effective with the gospel wherever he went. And a large part of that was because he was faithful and he served well in his initial deacon role. So in all of this, we need to keep the aim of deacon leadership right in front of us. And that is that their aim is to advance the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. We want to fight against the the mindset or the thought process that just views deacon service as serving in a task or serving in a role. They are intimately connected with the purpose of the church, which is to advance the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, I praise you and I thank you for the gospel that you've given to us. I thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, I thank you and praise you that you've given us a church and you've given us clear guidelines on how to use and function within the church. Lord, I praise you that you've ordained deacons, men who are approved and tested, and Lord, you've given them to serve in a particular role. And Father, I pray for the men in our church who serve as deacons. I pray that you would embolden them for greater things. I would pray that you would cause them to become more and more qualified that they would love the gospel. Lord, I pray for those men. I pray for their wives, that they would serve their husbands well. I pray for us, Lord. I pray for every one of the men in here today, that they would be men who love these qualifications. They love to serve in them. Lord God, they would love to become more and more qualified to be men who serve as deacons. I praise you in all these things in Christ's name. Amen.